Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Well, we're really fortunate today to have Dana Barrett here with us, who is a longtime radio personality who decided to run for office in the state of Georgia, which is pretty exciting. Um, I can't wait to hear this story. You know, what a, what a transition to go from behind the mic to in front of the podium. Yeah. What well, inspired that? It's uh, it's weird to be sitting here with you because the last time we saw each other, I was interviewing you. Which is the best part of life when which, things turn around. Which means like I got to ask the questions uh, and now I'm having to answer them. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I the, the short version of the story is that I was doing business media for – uh, a pretty significant period of time before the 2016 election. And I purposely stayed away from political conversation because, you know, you've got sponsors and clients and you're just trying to kind of keep everybody happy. And, you know, so you just don't go there in polite company, air quotes, you know. Uh, then when 2016 happened, I just felt like I couldn't keep my mouth shut anymore. So I started talking uh, politics on my radio show. At the time, I was working for uh, a media company that was <clears throat> pretty conservative uh, and they were not happy about that. So ultimately, that caused me to get fired from that station, <laughs> which was a gamble that I was willing to take. Well, you know, you got to be yourself. And I just felt I felt like I had reached a point in my life where I had to stand up for what I believed in and take that risk. Yeah, what I love about that is, you know, you think about the, all the conversations about authenticity, taking risks, being vulnerable. Right. But there's consequences of that. There are. If you truly believe in what you're doing, um, it all works out. And in my case, I had made a lot of connections in the radio business. And so I ended up moving over to the iHeart talk station, WGST, uh, and and started doing a show from there. And on that show, I was essentially talking politics two hours a day every day. And I was um, feeling good about that. But when I really looked at what I was doing, I was talking in the bubble to people who agreed with me. Mm, right. And um, during this time, I also decided I needed to move. And long story short, because of the gerrymandering in Georgia, I sort of inadvertently landed in the 11th congressional district. Which district is that? So it is the northwest suburbs of Atlanta. So a lot of focus has been placed on District 6, which is the one where John Ossoff ran uh, and almost won. And then Lucy McBath came in and won. Mm -hmm. And 11 is sort of right next to that, to the northwest. So um, it's got a little bit of Buckhead, a little bit of Sandy Springs, and then it goes up into Cobb County, uh, Cherokee County, and Bartow County. So it's big. And I'm. And is it one of those counties that feels a little purple? Well, it's or been that, traditionally areas? red, mm -hmm. um, but demographically, it is sort of ripe to flip. Um, and one of the problems is there's never been a real um, challenge to the to the incumbent. The incumbent is Barry Loudermilk. Um, he is very very far to the right, and um, the guy who was on the floor of the House during the impeachment. Uh, hearings comparing Trump to Jesus, so he kind of made the national news and all the you know Colbert and all of that uh, at that. Moment. I couldn't, I couldn't even bear to watch that stuff. Yeah, that was that was him. So, so I you know was doing the radio show. I moved into the eleventh. I looked into Loudermilk, and when I moved, and I saw that nobody was really challenging him, and so I started doing my homework to see if this is something I could do. 
and ultimately decided to do it. So I jumped in October 1st. Um, so I'm in my second quarter in the race. And, you know, so far, so good. But most importantly, it feels like it's something that's coming from the heart. Uh, yes, it, it definitely is. I'm not somebody who ever wanted to be a politician. I have no desire even now to be a lifelong politician. That's not my goal. I believe in term limits. Uh, I want to go in, you know, try to shake things up, make a difference, put things like term limits in place, change campaign finance. Uh, we need, in my opinion, to bring things back um, from the polarization so that we can actually start to get results. And, you know, I recognize that a two-year term is probably not enough to do that, to go in as a freshman congressperson. So I think, you know, if I could paint a perfect picture for myself, I'd go in for three terms and then move on and let the next person come in and, and continue that work. Tell me about some of the things that you'd like to accomplish. Like when you, because what I hear you saying is that you'd like to see a more moderate America. Yes, and I think the reason for that is I, I truly believe that more Americans live in the middle. Um, they're just not the loudest voices. It's not. I mean, listen, you're in the media. Uh, you know that what's sexy is what sells, and the person screaming is always going to get more attention than the reasonable person who is writing real policy on paper. It's just not sexy. But but I think most Americans are tired of the of the loud voices and they're frustrated and they don't feel like they have a voice and our, our current political system drives you to the edge that i think that's the biggest issue that we're facing is the way that the polarization gives you two options where they say well if you want to be part of the conversation you can be part of the conversation on the far right or you, you want to be part of the conversation over here you can be part of the conversation on the far left but wow how nice would it be if we could get back to where there's a conversation in the middle. You know, I'm a California Republican who's moved to Georgia. Now I'm a Georgian and I'm a Republican in Georgia. But yet as a, as a California Republican, oftentimes in Georgia, I feel a little bit like a Democrat because I'm so moderate. Right. Right. And so it's difficult to relate to the conversations that are happening on the far right. It's difficult to relate to the conversations that are happening on the far left and it would be an incredibly huge boost to our country if we could have more candidates that were in the middle having conversations across party lines That's, about reasonable things. It's the only way we're going to get anything done. I mean, because otherwise we're just swinging the pendulum back and forth between extremes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if we stay with Trump, you know, the Democrats stay fired up and they come back in two years and they win the midterms again. You know, if, if we swing to the far left and we go to the Bernie side, then the Republicans get fired up and we, you know, in the midterms they win and, and we never get anything done. Uh, we need to honestly go back to the days of a McCain who reaches across the aisle. I didn't agree with everything McCain wanted to do, but he was a he was a gentleman. Uh, and listen, and, Bill Clinton looks like a gentleman today, right? And and these are people that worked across the aisle that that you know sat down with people they didn't agree with, and they came to a compromise and they moved the country forward. And we're not doing that anymore. You know, I describe myself as socially liberal, fiscally responsible. I love that. Because I, too, have been a, an entrepreneur and a business person. I've covered business for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think throwing money at every problem is the solution. Um, but I also think we need to focus on true economic development, um, what's going to help small businesses grow. And we don't need to just, you know, protect big corporations. We need to protect all business. That's where jobs come from. When you think of yourself, when you say something like fiscally conservative, what does that mean to you? So I, I like the word responsible just because I think the word conservative brings oh, a whole loaded. bunch of other stuff with it. So mm -hmm. I say socially liberal, fiscally responsible. That's, fiscally responsible. And, fair. and what it means to me is, for example, 
that we should, when we do a budget as a country, not have a ginormous deficit. Like, we should actually figure out how to pay for things with money that we have or are bringing in. I love this. This (laughs) morning I was at at a breakfast with Raphael Bostic, who was the speaker. And Raphael is the president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank. And he had this, somebody asked him about deficits and what he felt about deficits. And he had the most wonderful line. He said, well, my feeling on deficits is that we should make sure that we can repay our debts. It was that simple, right? Don't get yourself so strung out that you can't service your debts. And don't get yourself so strung out that, that people who have lent you money become concerned right. that you can't pay your debts. Right. You know, I, I thought that was a really... Um, insightful way to to just distill it down to the essence. Yeah, I also think we we are in this mode right now in this country, and we probably have been for a long time, where everything is short-term thinking. There is no long-term thinking. You know, when we create this giant deficit, we're just pushing this off on our kids to pay it later, right? When we punt climate issues down the pike, we're just putting it off so our kids are going to have to deal with it. And we're doing it politician by politician so that they can get elected instead of actually focusing on solving real problems. What did you think about Jeff Bezos' announcement that he was given $10 billion to try to solve climate change? Did you see that? I didn't see it, but my first reaction is good. Yeah, amazing. Great. Right? I thought it was incredible. I mean, I love seeing these guys not just try to solve how to get uh, satellites into space and get uh, human beings on uh, on on tourist ex- experiences of space or get rockets to Mars, but now suddenly like taking on the challenge of saying, "All right, climate change is real, and we're really rich. So how can we throw resources and in mind power behind the uh, attempt to solve this problem that we have?" The only other thing I would say to Jeff, as if we were on a first name basis is pay your taxes, dude. Like, that's it. You don't think he's paying his taxes? Personally, I'm sure he pays his taxes. But the corporation, and they're using legal loopholes. I mean, they're not doing anything illegal. Illegal. But I think, you know, this whole idea that we can put corporate headquarters in other countries and pay their tax rate instead of the U.S. tax rate and all these games that companies play so that they don't have to pay taxes, eh, you know, there's got to be a better way. Now, one of the things I'll say about that is the difficulty is that all of these countries are sovereign nations. So then in order to try to create a system like you're talking about, you'd have to have something that was above the sovereign nation, Mm. right? Because Jeff is doing business with the UK. And that is totally separate and distinct from the business he's doing with the US and totally separate and distinct from the business he's doing with Sweden or Switzerland or Saudi Arabia for that matter. So it's a very complicated economic web that is difficult to solve. Mm -hmm. And so then because it's not solved at some sort of meta level, then you have intelligent guys who are just saying, all right, well, we do business here and money flows there. And they're trying to solve problems based on the rules. Well, and they are following the rules in fairness. And they are they do have the top experts who are helping them figure out how to pay the least amount of tax possible. That's their job. I get mm-hmm. it. Um, I think the problem is that smaller businesses don't have those same resources and end up with all the tax burden. I mean, I've had very small companies over the course of my life, and I couldn't offshore my taxes. I mean, it like, didn't go that way for me. That's fair. But I think if you looked at it on a whole dollar basis, the amount of taxes that are flowing in because of Amazon or Apple or Google provides so much social benefit to the country as a whole that whatever we're losing based on tax loopholes in intra-country uh, relationships is probably net-net not that big a loss relative to the scale of beauty and amazingness that these guys are adding to the country. That It's fair. And I have to say, all of these guys, at least the ones that 
I can think of off the top of my head, all do really good works with their money. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bill Gates does. Bezos is doing things. I mean, even Tesla, you know, and, and Elon Musk and, and doing things with solar panels. and They're all working to make the world a better place with their money and time. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to. So I do give them all credit for that. Well, and I and I think it's what's interesting when you say they don't have to. I think these guys have figured out that their happiness is tied to doing uh, incredibly human things. And so they, they, I think they're compelled to do this in a search for happiness. Yeah. When you get that rich, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be that rich, but <laughs> I imagine, let, let's do the thought experiment, the thought experiment of getting that rich. You get that rich and then you say, well, what's it all about? Yep. And how do I find deeper levels of happiness? And then you're like all into this self-actualization mode. And if you're doing it well, then you're going to be doing things, I think, like what Bill Gates is doing. Like, if you, Have you watched the uh, the wonderful Netflix three-part series, Inside Bill's Brain? I have not. It's fantastic. Mm. And it's all about Bill Gates taking the Gates Foundation money and really focusing in on particular problems, throwing huge amounts of money at resources, and trying to solve something particular. Yeah. That only happens if you get really, really smart guys who are really, really rich. Yeah. Right? So I, I think that there's a there's an element of letting these guys just play and explore and be, having belief that in the end things are going to work out well when it comes to the, the, these really huge billionaire kind of guys. Yeah, and I do think, I mean, look, that all sort of circles back to what I'm doing. I don't have that kind of money. I don't have those kind of resources, but I reached a certain age in my life where it's not just about my personal happiness anymore. It's not about, you know, the next pair of shoes or the next, you know, good meal out or whatever it is. It's mm-hmm. about you know, looking at the bigger world and saying, I I have a voice, I have an ability, I have the time, whatever the case may be, or in their case, I have the money, mm-hmm. and I want to work on making this world better. Um, for me, it's not about a legacy per se. It's not about what people remember after I'm gone. It's about, you know, make, leave, leaving the world a better place, mm-hmm. whether someone remembers my name or not. Well, so let me let me frame a question and then and then leave it with you, which is, I sit in a kind of a unique place because I didn't grow up in Georgia. I love this state. I consider it my home. But I have as many friends on the far right as I do on the far left. I feel as comfortable having conversations in the far right as I do having conversations in the far left. And I feel like I can straddle that with a lot of comfort in a way that a lot of my friends on the far right can't and a lot of my friends on the far left can't. My friends on the far right are really concerned that Georgia is somehow being overrun by liberal ideas and that the whole their whole way of life is going to uh, be pushed aside. I don't have that fear at all. I think that um, that there's room for everybody to live their lives however they want in America, which is beautiful. But my question to you is, when you talk about being socially liberal, tell me what that means to you, because I think that um, I think that there's a, a middle ground where both sides can come together and have a lot more common things that they can agree on. But I think it takes starting to have that conversation. So walk me through what you think of when you think of when you say, I'm a social liberal, I'm fiscally responsible, but yeah, I'm socially so, liberal. So I think for a lot of um, people on the far right, the fear is, you know, the the liberals, the progressives just want to spend a ton of money on programs. Um, for me, what I mean by socially liberal is I fully support the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. and their right to marry, mm-hmm. uh, that you should be able to love whoever you want to love. I, I support the trans community uh, and their desire to be whoever it is they want to be. I mean, what does how does that change my life? Why does it matter to me what somebody else is doing in their home, in their bedroom, with whatever clothes they choose to wear or how they want to be addressed, uh, what pronouns they use? It doesn't. 
for me, that should not be something we're dealing with um, in terms of restricting people. Right. Um, what, you're, what you're saying is that one of the premises of our society should be people should be allowed to do whatever they want. It doesn't hurt anyone else. Correct. Right. I mean, yeah. if what you're doing doesn't hurt anyone else, then why do I care? Um, I'm, I'm pro-choice, so that's part of my social liberalism. Now, that, that as you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm 100% behind a woman having the choice to do with her body what she chooses to do. From a philosophical standpoint, it becomes incredibly complicated. Yeah, right? although I have to tell you, um, I think this is another classic example of where um, the powers that be want us to stay on that issue. Because it means if, if you're choosing to vote on a, on a candidate solely because they're pro-life or pro-choice, you're ignoring everything else. Um, because you become a one-issue voter, and we'll, we're never going to solve that problem mm -hmm. with science, right? We don't know when life begins, and we never will. I agreed with that. So, so it's a faith-based and a medical-based decision. Mm -hmm. And my take on this, and by the way, I have raised money um, for my campaign from people who are pro-life, even mm -hmm. though I'm pro-choice. Mm -hmm. Because what I've said is, in, in, in my view, we have been fighting this battle in the government and in the courts for 60 plus years, 70 years, whatever it's been now, and we're not getting anywhere. And instead, we're, we're wasting court resources, we're wasting, you know, lobbying dollars, we're wasting time, energy, money, etc. on this issue when we have evidence that shows that you reduce the number of abortions by education far more than you do by legislation. So I say, let's take this out of the government and out of the courts, and let it be a private issue. You, whoever disagrees with me who are pro-life, you have free speech and you have the right to educate people on your beliefs all day long. And I would never stop you from doing that. But let's educate people on what their options are and let's stop dealing with this in the courts and in the government so that we can focus on things like infrastructure. Our mm -hmm. roads are falling down God, so that, that we can focus on things like health care mm -hmm. and actually make sure people are getting, you know, uh, getting healthcare when they're sick instead of going bankrupt when they're sick. Mm. But instead, we just keep fighting over this issue. Um, that it, you feel it, like needs to be put to bed, not because it's not uh, not philosophically complicated, because we, we all will agree that it's very philosophically agreed. complicated. But let but what the we're churches do, and the medical profession... Right, so we want to legislate freedom. Yes. And educate choice. There you go. Like can it. I steal that from you? You could steal it. That I've been using it for years. I like it. I, I, for years, I've said, <laughs> just let, let legislate my freedom and educate my choice. All will be well. Yeah. So there you, you, go. you can use that at your as, at your will. There you go. I will pay you a licensing fee. Okay. Not. So so when you say I'm socially liberal, what you really mean is I want to legislate freedom and I want to educate choice. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, it is fair. It really is. And that kind of goes across the board yeah. everywhere. Mm -hmm. It goes to. Um, how would you do that with medical? Like, how, how does that fit together with medical? So, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if that really fits the medical conversation as well from a slogan standpoint. Does, does that go over into maybe fiscally responsible? Yes, because I think my issue, I don't support Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. I think it's a nice idea. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the reason people like it is because it fits on a bumper sticker and it and it, it says, hey, government's going to come take care of me and I won't have to worry. And who doesn't want to be taken care of? Like there is some comfort in that. And I get it. In theory, right? In theory. Sure. Mm -hmm. But the reality. I want to be a billionaire like Jeff Bezos in theory. Right. Right. Me but then too. it's just where's the money come from? Right. So here's my problem. And this is I struggle with this on a lot of the topics. We are we are in a place of bumper sticker politics where if it doesn't fit on a placard or a bumper sticker or in 140 characters, we can't be bothered to dig any deeper. Mm -hmm. And 
I just think our healthcare system is way more complicated than that. So for me, there is it shouldn't be a choice on the left and on the Democratic side between Medicare for all and you know uh, uh, Medicare for those who want it or whatever, right? We need to actually dig deeper. If you look at what's happening in healthcare today, there are tons of layers of people in the middle who are making a ton of money. And we, at the end, the consumer, we don't see it. And I think we have to start digging into the industry. And I know everybody hates the word regulation, but that industry needs regulation. We have proven that there's too many people taking advantage. And by the way, regulation isn't going to cost us what Medicare for all would cost us. Mm -hmm. So it would actually potentially save the insurance industry Mm. and benefit them. Maybe they will make a little bit less profit, but they can continue to exist if we regulate properly. And I think the same is true with the pharmaceutical industry. There are so many middlemen that are jacking up the prices of drugs, the prices of insurance. We need things in this country like price transparency. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know this, it kind of went under the radar, but Trump actually just signed an executive order a month or so ago about price transparency. The problem is, by itself, it doesn't solve the problem. It's hmm. it's it's just looks good on paper. But you need what we need is price transparency at all levels across the mm-hmm. medical spectrum, along with uh, doctor choice. You have to be able to pick your own doctors. No insurance company should be able to say it's out of network. We pay zero. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. If your car breaks. Uh, uh, you know, if you get in a car accident and your car is wrecked, you can take it to the the body shop that your insurance recommends, or you can take it to your own, and they still pay. Right? No, it makes perfect. But that sense. doesn't happen in medical. Well, what I what I hear you saying, which I think is really needed, is you don't want to have this driven by ideology. Right. You want to have this driven by true economic thoughtfulness, actual uh, numbers on a page, and how things make sense. But true compassion for other people at the same time. Of course. But without um, compassion that doesn't have substance. Right. Actual sustainable compassion. I mean, people don't realize that Medicare has, within Medicare, there is this idea that they are not, uh, it's legally written down somewhere. I, I don't know the statute or how where it says it, but they're not allowed to negotiate price. Mm-hmm. How is that a good system? Like, Listen, I mean, we we would be so fortunate to have somebody as thoughtful, reflective, um, as you, Dana, uh, representing us in our government. I mean, we need more people like you. Well, thank you. Um, it's been great to have you on here today. I appreciate you taking the time. I wish you all the best in your campaign. I hope it uh, goes wildly successful and that you end up being able to implement all this passion that you have to help all of your all the people you want to represent. Thank you, Ryan. It's such a pleasure. I, I could talk all day. Uh, Dana, if anybody wants to get in touch with you about your campaign, tell me some of your social media, what best ways to do that. The best thing to do is to go to my campaign website, which is electdanabarrett.com. Um, you can find me on all the socials. Uh, it's electdanabarrett on Instagram and Facebook, and I think it's the Dana Barrett on Twitter. So, Great. Yeah. Well, if you like what you heard today, go seek Dana out and help her in her campaign. Uh, we'd all be lucky to, to have somebody like her representing us. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. <laughs>